If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me this morning back to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, we go from a month in Isaiah chapter 9 to now, we won't spend a month in Zechariah 9, we'll spend exactly one week, about 30 minutes in Zechariah 9. If you remember, uh, those of you uh, who've been here for a while and aren't visiting, we began a study of the book of Zechariah in the middle of last fall, and we've spent approximately 11 weeks in our study of this Old Testament prophecy. We've probably got uh, about a half a dozen weeks more to go uh, before we make our way through the entirety of this book. It's been a while since we've been here. I kind of had to, you know, blow off the dust, shake off the cobwebs in terms of my own thinking, having spent time in Isaiah's world, in Isaiah chapter 9. Now I had to kind of reacclimate myself back into Zechariah's world, and so I assume that you need the same. So let me remind you of where we are when we come to Zechariah chapter 9. Uh, we are in ancient Israel, and it is in the, we are in the 6th century BC. The 6th century BC. So this is several hundred years before Jesus has come to earth. A remnant has returned from the land of exile to begin to rebuild God's city, the city of David, the city of Jerusalem, and at the center of it, the temple of God, the dwelling place of Yahweh. And so the prophet Zechariah is sent among this remnant to speak on Yahweh's behalf to his covenant people. As it starts to come back to you, he begins his message with a vision, an eight-fold vision that is jam-packed with imagery, with meaning that's intended to both challenge and encourage God's people. This was essentially chapters one through six of the book of Zechariah and part one of the book. Then, the prophecy after chapter 6, it jumps ahead in time. It jumps ahead two years to when the temple was half completed. Things seemed to be chugging along. And remember, God's people come to the leaders of God's people with some questions, with one question in particular. Should we keep weeping and abstaining as we've done all these years? Is this coming back to you now? God's people were asking about these fasts that they had built into the rhythm of their life. They were fasts prescribed not specifically by God, but by his people. And it was a question that forced Yahweh to address what was in their hearts. Remember, he responded to their questions with some questions. Are you fasting for me? Is this why you're doing this? He was asking what was behind the religious ritual. That was chapters 7 and 8, and we could call that, although most commentators divide the book simply in half, but we could kind of call chapter 7 and 8 part 2 of that prophecy. If chapters 1 through 6 were part 1, 7 and 8, jumping ahead two years, were part 2. One of the things that I left you with in chapter 8 this is now end of November, I think middle of November, was that exhortation from the Lord, fear not, let your hands be strong, right? For God is with us. The harvest is plentiful. So that was seven and eight. 
Now here we are in Zechariah chapter 9, the third and final section of the book. And we've jumped ahead in time. So now we are 40 to 50 years beyond where we were last, which is one of the reasons why I stopped where we did stop, because this is a big leap now in years. The temple is now completely up, but the city of Jerusalem is still vulnerable. Nehemiah, we know Nehemiah, those who've been around for a lot of years, we studied Nehemiah years ago, 10, 11 years ago, something like that now, but Nehemiah's story intersects with this story because Nehemiah will eventually return to this remnant as well to help rebuild the walls, right? But he hasn't done that yet at this point. So we're 40 to 50 years later than we were. Zechariah is now an old man. And while Israel is much better off than they were, they're not independent. They are not free. And therefore, they are still unsettled. They are still at risk. But Yahweh hasn't forgotten them. Yahweh has not forgotten their plight. And so he instructs Zechariah to proclaim these new words of encouragement and hope. It's a continuation in a way of where we were last time. Let your hands be strong. Even though this is 40, 50 years later, there is a commonality to what Zechariah is saying. But Zechariah has moved clearly in this prophecy, in this part of the book, from the immediacy of their situation to now he's kind of climbed up a bit and he's looking out far in the distance to a future that these people won't even see themselves. So I know that's a lengthy introduction. Hopefully you're now acclimated where we are. This is a message for God's people in any time and place because we are always mindful that we live in a broken and fallen world. And that while we can enjoy, thank the Lord that we can enjoy some measure of peace and joy in knowing the Lord Jesus and abiding in Christ, we, we know acutely that things are not as they should be. That we are not at home. And we long for something better. We long for things to be made right. And so let's listen to what Zechariah says to his people, what the Holy Spirit says to us this morning. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel and on Hamath also which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and will be afraid. Gaza too and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also 
because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. And His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of His people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on His land. For how great is His goodness and how great His beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. As you know, words these days don't seem to mean a whole lot. Language can be shifty. Definitions can be shifty. As are at times some of the promises that are made with them. Our politicians say they're going to do one thing, and then they justify themselves when they end up doing the opposite. Those of you who are old like me will remember these three words spoken in 1988. No new taxes. No new taxes. Spoken by George H.W. Bush as a campaign pledge as he sought to become president, which he did. Campaign promise that he could not keep. It's a scary thing when you can't trust those who are in power. When you can't trust what they say. It's a vulnerability that means that we just live in this ever-present state of, of anxiety. But you and I are here this morning because we are in search of solid ground. 
No, you and I are here this morning, not just because we are in search of solid ground, but because we know that solid ground exists. The points that I'm about to make, the truth that I want our hearts to meditate on this morning from Zechariah chapter 9, they could come from a number of different passages in Scripture, but it seems to me that they are strikingly significant in this passage. So two simple truths for us to work through briefly as I kind of explain what's going on here. And the first one is this. His promises are true. Make sure you put an exclamation point at the end. His promises are true. We've moved in this prophecy from confusing images to essentially in Zechariah 9 here, what seems to be like a geography lesson. It's a litany of names and places, names and places that according to verse 1 in our passage, the Lord God is against, meaning he is coming in judgment on these places. The language here is not timid right? He's going to strip her, strike her down as he personifies these places in these cities. He's going to devour her. And the result of this will be fear and anguish and the feeling and the sense and the reality of being cut off. Why? Why is Yahweh after These places, well, because these are the nations, these are the cities who have been hostile to Yahweh and his people. These are the peoples that have been content to live in rebellion to their creator, to chase idols after their own making. Places like Tyre, who's listed there. Tyre was a prominent commercial port In the ancient world, in the 6th century, it was known for its wealth. It was known for its materialism. It was known for its arrogance as an impenetrable naval port. We'll get back to Tyre. Familiar names from the land of the Philistines, this historic enemy of God's people. Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron and Ashdod. You can kind of create in your mind's eye this map beginning in the north where Damascus is located and beginning in the north where most of Israel's enemies came from and then working your way down south, down the coast. I couldn't help but think of the Pacific Northwest. We start in Seattle and Portland. We work our way down to San Francisco and Silicon Valley. We work our way down to Los Angeles and Hollywood and the opulence of Beverly Hills. These were wealthy regions. These were regions that were rich in natural resources. These were regions that were bolstered by the economics of trade off of the Mediterranean Sea. But more importantly, most importantly, these were pagan places who wanted nothing to do with Yahweh. All they wanted to do was oppress His people. And they had done so for years. And Yahweh's had enough. The point is this, the promise of judgment against his enemies is hope. Yahweh is saying, read my lips. 
I will deal with my enemies. I will deal with your enemies. It's akin to what Zechariah said at the beginning of the prophecy when he stated in 121 that he would cast down the horns of the nations. It's what we saw glimpses of in chapter 6 as we saw the divine warrior on the move through that vivid image. You see, Yahweh held out his promises for this sixth century people. And though they were distant, meaning they were far in the future, God's people believed and they were encouraged. They needed to hear these things that God had not forgotten them, but that God knew by name those places that had oppressed them. But what about us? What about us? We're we're in Edmonds, Washington in 2023. These were not our enemies. How does this encourage us? Well, it seemed to me as I was studying this passage, you and I exist in a privileged position to this prophecy and to these words. What do I mean by that? Well, these promises were distant for God's people long ago. But for us who sit here today, these promises have become a historical reality verifying and validating that His promises are true. You see, we sit on the other side. The literal fulfillment of these words has occurred in time and in space and in history. They looked forward to what they couldn't see. It was shady. It was cloudy. It was shadowy. We look back with clarity. And what do we look back at? We look back at amazing accuracy to what is spoken here by the prophet of the Lord. In fact, these words... In Zechariah 9, they're so spot on in terms of what went down in history that those who don't like God's word, those who want to discredit God's word says, well, Zechariah couldn't have written these then. Somebody else must have written these after these things happened because there's no way that Zechariah could have written these things because he's so spot on in what he writes. You see, in about 150 years from when Zechariah speaks these words in the year 333 B.C., a young leader by the name of Alexander the Great will begin his conquest of this region. And he'll begin by defeating the Persians in the northern city of Isis. And then he'll turn south. And he'll begin by eliminating these affluent port cities along the Mediterranean Sea and the naval threats that they possess to him and his army. And they will come to the city of Tyre, a city that our text says has built herself a rampart. You see, Tyre had found a way to guard and increase its wealth by creating defensive walls that were unmatched for its day. This is a pretty amazing story. The city of Tyre was originally built right on the coast But it had been moved. It had been moved to an island a half a mile off of the coast. And around that island were defensive walls that were enormous. And so history tells us the Assyrians had tried for five years to breach Tyre. 
before they gave up. The Babylonians had tried for 13 years to breach Tyre before they gave up. In fulfillment of this prophecy, a clear instrument in Yahweh's hands, it will take Alexander just seven months to bring Tyre to its knees. How will he do it? Well, that's another amazing story. He'll take the rubble of the old city and he'll build a half a mile land bridge from the mainland to the island in order to deal with the city, not just from the sea, but from the land. And then Alexander will finally, after he takes Tyre, he will work his way south and he'll make his way to Jerusalem. But inexplicably, instead of rolling over Jerusalem, as he had done with all these other cities, he does nothing. Let me remind you of verse 12. I will encamp at my house, the Lord says, as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. Yahweh had promised that he would be an invisible stronghold. And that invisible stronghold prevented Alexander from touching God's people. God's promises are true. You see, that's essentially a a history lesson. But I think it's so helpful, I think it's so poignant for us who sit here today Because it reminds us, what I want us to see is that God's sovereignty is not hypothetical. One commentator states this plainly when he writes, this is, this prophecy, this fulfillment, this is a monument to the truth of prophecy and the folly of human pride. And we haven't even gotten to verse 9 yet. Right? Verse 9, we hear verse 9 and so many of us who know and love Jesus that rings true in our years, right? Matthew 21, 4 and 5, near the end of Jesus' life, right before he's about to ride into Jerusalem, Matthew writes, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And that's exactly what Jesus does is he gets on a donkey and he rides into Jerusalem fulfilling these ancient words. No other king could fulfill such words. A king who is righteous and brings salvation. For Jesus, this statement was so much more than that he would be a king who would do right or that he would be a king who would bring earthly salvation. Of course, that's what many of the Jews thought. That's what many of them had hoped for, that this Messiah would take the tyranny off of their backs, but Jesus came to do so much more. Jesus is the king who is righteous. Jesus is the king who is perfect, who is holy, and that perfection is bound up in the salvation that he brings, not merely from temporary foes, but from sin from ourselves, from our eternal damnation and darkness. Jesus is the King, and we talked about it. We meditated on it last month. Jesus is the King whose peace comes to the nation in a way that's so much more profound. In a way that no weapon of war can accomplish. 
Which is why the prophet speaks of the chariots and the bow being cut off and unnecessary. What better way to illustrate this than having him ride in on a donkey? You don't ride a donkey into war. You ride a stallion. And while Jesus will get on a stallion one day, and we will see him as he truly is, in fulfillment of this peace and this kingdom that was unlike any other, he rides in on a donkey and says that my rule is global from sea to sea. The point, brothers and sisters, is that just like Alexander fulfills the promises of 1 through 8, so the Lord Jesus fulfills verses 9 and 10, proving to us that his promises are true. You see, for me, as I was thinking about this passage, it just takes again, the scriptures take again us out of the realm of wishful thinking. The Bible is not some ethereal book out of touch with the real world and just for those who need a crutch for the hardness of life. No, these prophecies are true. And if they're true, if history has revealed that these things are true, then God can be trusted in all that He says to us. His words are not empty. They are not mush. His words are a rock that can be relied upon, a refuge that can be hidden in. And so when you hear words like Romans 8, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, powers, height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can believe that. The promise that He is enough, we can believe that. The promise that He will return and make things all right, we can believe that. The promise that we will one day be raised to new life, we can believe that. Because his promises are true. I think that's the real goal that we find in this passage. A passage far removed from our experience, but not really. I will add this though. It's clear from passages like this that God's timetable is not ours. Right? It's a passage that reminds us that we've got to take the long view of things. I'll be the first to acknowledge how short-sighted I am. How narrow-minded and tunnel vision I can be. We may think that God has forgotten us if we don't see immediately the results that we think we should see. But He hasn't. He has shown Himself faithful again and again. He has revealed that His character is good and true. And so we don't allow the circumstances around us to dictate how we feel, but rather we trust in the certainty of His Word. Which leads us to the second brief truth. The instruction on how to respond to such realities. Two simple commands are given. We'll wrap them up in one. Rejoice and return to your stronghold. 
Rejoice and return to your stronghold. In other words, worship and trust in me. Not in me, Nate Hitchcock. In me as in Yahweh. This is the called for response. Yahweh speaks to his covenant people, verse 11, and he says, believe my promises are true and live, rejoice and return. He first personifies Jerusalem, inviting them to worship their king in verse 9. And then he speaks of the holdouts, right? Those who, for whatever reason, didn't return from the land of exile. They didn't return from Babylon to the land of promise in verse 12. And he essentially says to them, come home. Come home. Believe that I am enough for you. Believe that I am enough for your safety, for your sustenance, for your satisfaction. Return to your stronghold. Live in hope. Despite what you may see around you. You see, brothers and sisters, in Jesus, our our response is the same, and, and we're in part doing it this morning. This is what we're about as we gather the first day of every week to lift our voices in praise, to submit our minds and hearts to His Word, to commune with Him at the table. We sing, we shout aloud, we remember and we recognize at our God. But as we go from this place, our footing And our trust in His Word will be tested. Every week it's tested. So the Lord just says to you again this morning, you've gathered here, you've rejoiced in your King. Return to your stronghold. Trust me. The Lord says, will, will the promise of my word, the portion of my presence be enough for you this week? Or you, will you believe the lies of the world? Will you believe the lies of your own heart and flesh? Will you chase after idols of your own making? Will you settle yourself in anxiety because you want to control? The Lord says to His people, my promises are true. It's easy to trust when we're in control. It's hard to trust when we're not. The reminder this morning, the invitation this morning is to believe Him. To believe in the One He has sent. To rejoice and return to your stronghold, the stronghold of His promises, the stronghold of His presence. He is for you. He is not against you. In many ways, this whole passage, this whole message could be summed up in the words of another prophet. And I'm going to close with these words from Isaiah chapter 26, verses 1 through 3. The prophet there says to God's people, and he says to us here this morning, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. 
You keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. May that be our song this day, this week, all of our days. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage, this rich, not just biblical prophecy, but this rich history of events that happened in real time and in real space. History that has reminded us that your promises are not far off, but your promises are real, they're true, and they're for us. Oh Lord God, forgive us for so easily ignoring the reality of these things, for so easily chasing after our own devices, clamoring for control. Father, we thank you for the invitation to rejoice and to return. And though it's not stated in this passage, the Lord Jesus said it, to rest. All who are weary and heavy laden, rest. Rest in who you are and in what you've done and in what you've promised to do. Oh, Father, impress these things upon our hearts and in turn upon our lives, I pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.